So tonight I want to talk about the present moment and why, why we spend so much time talking about it and trying to pay attention to it. I want to just check in. Can everybody hear me okay? Is this okay? Okay. Now sometimes it seems like we endlessly talk about the present moment and after a day of coming back to the body, coming back to the breath over and over again, even when we've done it for a while, we can start to wonder, why am I doing this? What does this have to do with anything anyway? So um, to start this exploration of the present moment, I'd like to start by reading a poem from the Buddha. And this poem, I find this an interesting poem to look at and reflect on because it's repeated four times in the suttas. It's, um, and in, in a couple of those times, the discourse where this poem is talked about begins by a couple of people talking, or actually I think it's usually a, a, a monk and a, a deity are having a conversation. And the conversation goes something like, do you remember that poem the Buddha, sa- the Buddha told us to, uh, to reflect on? And the other one says, no, do you remember that poem? No, well, maybe we should go ask about it. So um, they, they kind of get the sense that this is, a, this is a poem that they were encouraged to memorize, to reflect on. Let not one revive the past, or on the future build one's hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight let one see each presently arisen state. Let one know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, is one, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. So he's stressing here, coming into the present, letting go of the past, letting go of the future, and coming into the present. I'll talk about that in some more detail. But first I want to... um, I found this cartoon, a Peanuts cartoon, that to me is kind of like a commentary on this poem. Lucy and Charlie Brown are sitting at the wall, you know, kind of looking out, hanging out in the afternoon, looking over the wall. And Lucy says to Charlie Brown, do you realize how many great moments in life are wasted? Take." Take, for instance, the great moment that's coming up right now. Bang! It's gone! You've just wasted it! And Charlie Brown responds, Well, you're a lot of fun to be around. And I think, you know, like any good um, humor, there's truth on both sides of that. You know, that we do... um, 
waste our moments by not being present for them. You know, it's, uh, you know, we waste so many of our moments by being lost in the past and being, you know, caught up fantasizing, thinking about the future. And yet, on the other hand, uh, Lucy's idea of what wasting a moment is seems to imply that there's something special that needs to be happening. Whereas Charlie Brown is content hanging out and looking over the wall. You know? not, not a problem to hang out and look over the wall. So we, we tend to revive the past and project into the future. We do this endlessly. What is the past when we actually look at it? The past is thoughts that are arising now in the present moment. And and we are kind of in a thought world, a thought bubble around that past. So we're lost. We're not connected to what's actually happening here and now. We are reflecting back and living in that world of the past. Or the future. We, we, it even, more, even more of a kind of exercise in futility in a way is, is spending our time projecting forward into what the future might be. Not to say that we can't plan and think about what we're going to do, but we spend an inordinate amount of time actually going over scenarios. What's going to happen if they say that? Well, then I'll respond that way. Well, what's going to happen if they say that? Well, then I'll respond that way. I've spent so much of my life thinking about the future that never appeared. I mean, even when I, even when I had thought, I had planned out every possible scenario and thought, okay, that's what's happened, that's what I'm going to do. If that situation actually did happen, I rarely could do the thing that I thought I was going to do. We just cannot really predict how we're going to respond in a moment when we actually get there. So these, these activities of mind, these thoughts, they're all just thoughts arising in the present moment. But we don't see them as that. We see them somehow as actually being the past and actually being the future, if not the the actual future, possible futures. So if we're not actually here, present, we miss our lives. I spent so much time both looking back and thinking about, a lot, often with regret, thinking back on the past. You know, thinking back and, oh, I wish I'd done that, I wish I'd said that. You know, trying to revive the past and, and live it over again differently so that I wouldn't be experiencing something here and now. Or projecting often with fear into the future. You know, I remember, I remember one time I was you know, having some struggle with my boyfriend at the time, and, um, you know, I came up with this scenario, well, he's going to do that, and, and, and I'm, then I'm going to get really mad at him, you know? And he never did that. 
So it's just, it was all just fantasy, all just projection. And so much of our life, so much of our suffering actually happens over reviving the past and projecting into the future. I suffered a lot over that fantasy of, well, this is what my boyfriend's going to do, and then I'm going to be really mad at him. I didn't need to suffer over that. It never happened. <clears throat> so if we're not mindful of what's happening here and now, we're actually missing our lives. It is that sense of, bang, it's gone, you've wasted it. You know, it's never again is this moment going to be here. Every moment is new, every moment is fresh. And if we're lost in the past or lost in the future, we miss our lives. So that's one reason to be in the present moment. It's the only place anything ever happens, including the past and the future. The past and the future happen here and now, in our thoughts, and our minds. What we think of as past is hap- happens here and now. What we think of as future happens here and now. Another reason or uh, helpful understanding to have about the present moment is that it's actually in the present moment that our struggles are created. We react to our experience. And thinking back to this, these examples of past and future, you know, what's happening is there's a thought arising now. We may, re- we, we may react to that, as I described. You know, we, we think of something that we wish we'd done or hadn't done. There's regret arising. What's actually happening is that there's a thought arising in the present moment. And then there's a reaction to that thought. Often that thought has a kind of a unpleasant, there's an idea associated with that thought that's unpleasant. I wish I hadn't been the kind of a person who'd said that thing. And so we regret that. There's that, that arising of that memory, there's that construction of that identity, I'm the person who said that, I didn't like that person, and then we suffer over that. There's that regret that, that arises. And that regret is arising now, it's arising here and now. We sometimes think about our suffering over the past in particular as being um, something that we carry around with us. You know, that we, that's like baggage or something that we, we think is always weighing us down. There is kind of baggage there. I mean, the memory is there, and there's a kind of a tendency for us to uh, have that baggage around that memory. You know, a memory of something that happened and a feeling of embarrassment. Often it feels like these things are inextricably intertwined. There's no way that that memory can arise without embarrassment arising. And it feels as if almost that embarrassment is kind of waiting, lurking underneath the surface, just waiting to pop up. But actually when we start to explore in the present moment what happens, 
the memory arises, the reaction to that memory arises, and then the embarrassment arises. It, it actually happens in sequence. And it's not necessarily the case that those two are extricably intertwined. There's a habit of going from that memory to embarrassment. A very strong pattern, a strong habit. And yet, it does not have to be that way. That memory can arise and we can just see it as an arising memory. Oh, there's that memory. When we see it arising, when we see the memory coming up as just a thought and, and don't kind of create the identity around the person who did that in the past or was in that situation in the past, when, when we just notice it, oh, there's a thought. Then there's the possibility of seeing that it is just a thought and there doesn't need to be the follow-on reaction to it. So much of our suffering is created like this. Thoughts arising about the past, thoughts arising about the future, and we react to those thoughts. And then there's things happening in the present moment that we react to. Physical pain, for instance, is one way that we often get reactive. Unpleasant, unpleasant experience in the body we often react to. And again, this is um, a very habitual kind of experience that when there's pain in the body, we don't like it, we don't want it, we want to get rid of it, we feel like, we may feel like we don't have control over it, and there's a struggle, there's a feeling of, of being combative with that physical unpleasantness. And from the Buddha's uh, perspective in the, in the teachings around this, he talks about that it's as if we, you know, having been struck by a dart, an arrow being struck by an arrow, then we pick up another arrow and strike ourselves again because we have this initial sense of physical pain that's that first arrow. But then we get reactive to it. We don't like it, we don't want it, we want to get rid of it, we want to fix it, change it, control it. That's that second dart. And it becomes a feedback loop whereby that pain just escalates. The mental pain compounding the physical pain. So these things happen in the present moment. This process happens in the present moment. And by being mindful, being present in the present moment, we have an opportunity not only to witness this process, but through witnessing the process with mindfulness, we can sometimes choose differently. So the reactive mind basically wants things to be other than they are right now. Our reactive mind is essentially out of alignment with the way things are here and now in this moment. And if you reflect on this a little bit, you know, this is the situation we're in right now. Things have happened in the past, causes and conditions have come together to put us into whatever situation we're in right now. 
It is here. Whatever situation it is, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever experience we're having, is already happening. And so often we fight against that experience that's already happening. We hate it. We, we have aversion to it. Or we really like it and we want to hold on to it. And we experience the fear around the thought of it going away. So that situation here and now is just what's happening. And I'm not saying that all we do is just sit here and you know, not try to take action. But the aversion, the wanting to hold on, those are extra. And they create a mental stress, a mental suffering, kind of a sense of dissatisfaction that's extra in our experience. It's not necessary. We can experience something unpleasant and take action to, you know, we cut our finger with a knife and we can take action to bind it up and not feel angry at ourselves for having cut ourselves with a knife. That's just a simple example. But that's the kind of thing we do over and over again. We rail against things as they are. And that very railing against is the suffering, is the stress, is the dissatisfaction. There's another way of relating to our experience. The Buddha suggests mindfulness as another way to relate to our experience in the present moment. When we notice that we are battling with things as they are, battling with the present moment, the Buddha said, you know, this is suffering, this battling with the present moment. And what we need to do with that suffering is understand it. We need to not understand it intellectually, he's not talking about a a thinking about, but a direct experiencing of that suffering. How does it come to be? What does it feel like? It may sound counterintuitive, but I'll talk a little bit about how this works, how being mindful of our suffering actually helps to free us from it. I'll share first a a poem one of my favorite poets, Rainer Maria Rilke. And this is a kind of a, it's kind of a celebration or a acknowledgement of this truth that suffering is our teacher. And it's what helps to wake us up. Rilke says, this is in, in one of the Duino elegies the tenth Duino elegy. Someday, emerging at last from the violent insight, let me sing out jubilation and praise to assenting angels. Let not even one of the clearly struck hammers of my heart fail to sound because of a slack, a doubtful, or a broken string. 
Let my joyfully streaming face make me more radiant. Let my hidden weeping arise and blossom. How dear will you be to me then, you nights of anguish? Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters, and surrendering lose myself in your loosened hair? How we squander our hours of pain. How we gaze beyond them into the bitter duration to see if they have an end. Though they are really our winter enduring foliage, our dark evergreen, one season in our inner year, not only season in time, but our place and settlement, foundation and soil and home. So mindfulness of this phenomenon of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, of stress, so many different translations for this term dukkha, the Buddha used this term dukkha, often translated as suffering. But the term dukkha is much broader and deeper than that word usually conveys. Some others have translated it as stress or unreliability or unsatisfactoriness. that kind of gives you more of a sense of what, what we're talking about here. You know, it's a, there's just this rub, this kind of feeling of things just maybe aren't quite the way we'd like them to be. So being in the present moment, ways we can learn about this reactive mind and learn to kind of free ourselves from it, let go of it a little bit. One of the ways is by this process of just being in the present moment, the mind begins to settle down, it gets concentrated, it gets still. And in that process of the mind settling down and getting concentrated, the um, the reactivity uh, towards and away from things begins to fall away. Concentration through mindfulness brings us to a place where we can just meet the present moment without reactivity. And so we begin to see through that process that the reactivity is extra. We can be with our breath through pain in our body, and that it's actually okay. Or we can sit through an emotional storm. And sometimes as the mind settles even further, the emotional storms even fall away. And we see a thought arise, and you know, it's not a problem, that memory that led to embarrassment. It just, the embarrassment just doesn't come up because the mind is right there to see that thought arise. And it sees it, oh, it's just a thought, and it passes away. So the mind settling in concentration begins to help us to understand how all this reactivity is extra. Also, as we settle into the present moment, often through concentration, there is a kind of a peacefulness, a settling that happens. 
the mind gets more comfortable and more at ease in that process. And through that, it's like the mind starts to get an education in peacefulness and ease, and it begins to gravitate more to that. It sees, yeah, okay, so this reactivity is happening, and I remember what that peace felt like. can kind of just almost begin to let go of the state of reactivity and gravitate to something that has become more familiar and feels more grounded and settled. So the, the process of being in the present moment begins to educate our minds in another way of being. So this helps us to let go of some of this reactivity. And then there's a letting go that happens as we start to, in being mindful of something, being mindful of the arising of a very habitual pattern of self-hatred, for instance. One of my favorite habitual patterns that I worked with over the years. That through the practice of mindfulness, through the being with things as they are and not resisting things as they are, there seems to be a little shift that can happen as we bring our mindfulness to our experience. Where it's, it's like things don't have to be other than they are. It's like, oh, there's an arising thought of self-hatred. That's the way it is. It doesn't have to be any different. So the, the mindfulness begins to kind of create a little space around our experience. There's a, uh, a fun poem by Billy Collins. Some of you might have heard me <coughs> offer this before. But it, it offers this kind of sense of this shift of perspective that can happen as we pay attention when we come into the present moment and we are paying attention, you know, something's happening and we just hate this thing that's happening. But we bring, can you just keep bringing our mindfulness back over and over again and suddenly there's a shift. Things change. So this Billy Collins poem is called Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in My House. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He's barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for a barking dog. When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo 
that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. So something that we just assume is, you know, a problem can shift and our minds can take it in in a different way. Then there's the letting go that happens as we are willing to hang out with things that are difficult. The kind of the mindfulness, just, you know, watching our emotions rise and pass, watching our uh, bodily sensations arise and pass. With emotions, this is a particularly good one to, to notice this with, that you know, if we are able to simply allow a challenging emotion without either resisting it and trying to push it away or without trying to manipulate it or fix it or change it or without holding on to it. Sometimes we can hold on to our you know, a feeling of self-righteous anger. You know, we can whip ourselves up into even more and more anger through that feeling of self-righteousness, kind of holding on to it. You know, it makes us feel somehow justified. So by, instead of relating to our experience in one of those ways of either pushing away or holding on to, but rather just simply being with. Now that, that, that can be you know, it's a shift of perspective to just be with something. Allow a feeling of anger, not trying to change it, but just kind of riding it out. The law of impermanence will take over, and that thing will eventually end. So we can watch this process. We can see how being mindful of something, and particularly with difficult emotions, you know, emotions, we tend to feed our emotions with our thoughts. We tend to, um, having a, you know, a, a depressive state, we tend to, you know, keep talking ourselves into that depression. Oh, I'm no good, I'm a failure, I've, I've really blown it this time, and nobody's ever going to like me again, you know, we can, we can go on and on like that. And those thoughts simply perpetuate that feeling of depression. Likewise with something like anger, we can perpetuate it through our thoughts. So through mindfulness, what we do is instead of putting our attention out in the world on the thing that we are focused on, or inside ourself in terms of how we think we failed or, or what we've done wrong. Instead of focusing on that, if we turn instead to the feeling of the emotion, what we do is we kind of cut the mental juice that's keeping that emotion going. And by cutting that juice, Kind of like a car, you know, you, you, are those emotions are kind of like a car, they're going, you're going down the freeway at, at, you know, 100 miles an hour with that emotion and pumping those thoughts is like putting your foot on the gas pedal. If you can turn your attention to the feeling of the emotion itself, 
let go of the thoughts. It's like you've taken your foot off the gas pedal and put the car into neutral. It's not going to stop immediately. But it will come to a stop because you're no longer giving it the gas. So it's kind of like that with the mindfulness. We can turn our attention to the feeling and that's like putting it, our minds into neutral around that feeling. And it gives the opportunity for that feeling to live its life and come to an end. And so we can realize the letting go of our reactivity by being willing to be mindful of it until it dissipates through impermanence. So mindfulness is really the key in the present moment. Mindfulness along with some sense of understanding of what's helpful for us to pay attention to, what's helpful for us to lead us away from suffering. The Buddha, the Buddha really focused on this. You know, he said, you know, this is all I teach. I teach about suffering and I teach about the ending of suffering. Everything that I teach is kind of leading in that direction. So, you know, keep your eye on the suffering. Keep your eye on that and understand it. It will help lead to the ending of suffering. And he said that there's three main underlying tendencies of mind that lead us into suffering, into unsatisfactoriness, into stress, over and over again. And these are greed, aversion, and delusion. I'm not going to give a detailed talk about that right now. But these qualities of greed, aversion, and delusion, you know, acting out of greed, trying to hold on to something, trying to hold on to something that inevitably, because everything is impermanent, that thing we're trying to hold on to will eventually go away and we will suffer. Or we suffer from the holding on itself because we're afraid that it's going to go away, knowing something about how things go. So we experience fear, a kind of, in that very greed, there's a, a contraction, a stress, a suffering. Aversion is really obviously suffering. Even the feeling of aversion is unpleasant in the body. A sense that this is not acceptable. This has got to change. That suffering. Now again, it's not to say that when something is happening that we don't take action to change it. But that sense of aversion around it is optional. It, that aversion itself is suffering. And we can take action instead out of compassion, out of kindness, rather than out of aversion. Some more wholesome motivation for action. So the Buddha pointed to action taken out of greed, aversion, and delusion. He said, if you act out of greed, aversion, and delusion, you're essentially deepening the ruts of greed, aversion, and delusion in your mind. And that will lead you into more suffering. 
If your actions are motivated by non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, that will lead you away from suffering and towards happiness. And so he, in, in this teaching, he said, you know, keep your eye on, on your mind. You know, if you're going to be acting out of greed, aversion, or delusion, if you can, choose to not take those actions. That is, that's going to lead you towards more happiness. There's this interesting quality of mindfulness that as we turn our attention to those unskillful states of mind, those unskillful motivations, you know, greed, aversion, delusion are the kind of three roots, but you know, so many difficult, unwholesome, unskillful states of mind result from those, you know. Anger, rage, cruelty, hostility, frustration, depression, wanting, avarice, all arise out of these three roots. And the amazing thing about mindfulness is that if you turn with mindful attention to those states of mind. As I was talking about before, letting go of the thoughts associated with them in favor of just being with the feeling. Then mindfulness creates the conditions for that, those difficult states, those unhelpful states to appear less frequently in our minds. Partly it's because Through that turning towards those states, you know, when we're when we're caught by those mental, those difficult states, when we're caught by anger, we don't actually recognize how it's impacting us here and now. You know, I know in my in my life when I've been caught by anger, I've been so focused on that other person. Well, you know, I really hope that they suffer. You know, I'm so focused on the anger at that other person that I'm not feeling how I'm suffering through the anger in this moment. So turning the mindfulness away from the thing we're angry at and towards the experience of anger itself begins to give the mind an education in the fact that state actually doesn't feel very good, not very helpful in our system here and now. So it begins to educate us in the suffering of those states. And when the mind begins to get that education, and it also starts to see how that anger is arising out of kind of a holding, a clenching in our own minds, it's it easy, oh, this is something that, that the, the mind sees it's something that it's doing to itself. And so it starts to let go of that. It's really quite an amazing property of mindfulness that turning mindful attention to these difficult things actually helps us to let go of them. I didn't believe it when I first heard it, but over and over again I have seen it, the truth of that in my own experience. The other interesting thing about mindfulness is that if you turn your attention to beautiful states of mind, wholesome, skillful states of mind that are 
motivated, motivated out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. The quality of metta, the quality of kindness that we were working with this afternoon, the quality of compassion, the quality of mindfulness itself, the quality of tranquility, the quality of generosity. Turning mindful attention to those states, noticing how those are here and now in the moment, creates the conditions for them to become more frequent in our experience. So mindfulness has this simultaneous kind of property that it helps us to let go of what's unskillful and cultivate what's skillful. By just turning our attention to the present moment and noticing what's here, we begin to naturally let go of the states that are motivated by greed, aversion, and delusion. We begin to naturally cultivate more of the wholesome qualities of love, of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, of equanimity. So the other, another reason why it's so helpful to be in the present moment, noticing the present moment, it's the only place anything ever happens. It's where our reactivity is born, so it's where we can start to see that reactivity. And the mind, being mindful in the present moment, begins to naturally let go of the, the unwholesome things and naturally cultivate the skillful things. Another reason is that the present moment is the only place that there's any possibility of choice. And this relates back to what I was just talking about with skillful action and unskillful action. That through seeing our experience in the present moment over and over again, we, we begin to notice, what, that we can begin to notice that kind of a motivation happening in our minds before we actually act. So we can know that we're going to speak before we speak, we can know that we're going to move before we move. And we can know that even we, we can even know we're going to think before we think. We can also know there's, you know, we're kind of headed in the direction of an emotion before that emotion actually arises. And this is the, the factor in the mind of intention. That intention is what motivates our action. And we can see this. We can see intention apart from the action. So we can, in particular, through the physical actions of our body, we can begin to explore this. We can begin to notice that we can know we're going to move before we move. So in the knowing of this intention, the knowing that, that this, I'm, I'm getting ready to move, or I'm getting ready to act, I'm getting ready to speak, in the knowing of that, we can also often, not always, but often see why we're going to do that thing. So that we, there's a kind of a motivation that underlies our actions. So accompanying all of those intentions to act is a motivation, a reason why we're going to act. And that reason is the key. 
This is the Buddha really pointed to that as a very important point to notice. That if we can find that, that motivation and recognize whether it is skillful or unskillful, then we have an opportunity, having seen that intention and the motivation, because we've seen it come up, mindfulness has an opportunity to kind of step in and choose to not follow through on that intention. If we're not mindful in the present moment, these choices happen for us. Our habits make our choices for us. The ways that we have engaged through our lives have you know, created a kind of momentum of particular habits. We all have our own favorite habits. My two favorite habits were anger and self-hatred. And over and over again, I kept falling into those ruts, falling into those ruts. When mindfulness wasn't present, it was kind of like those were the ruts that I gravitated towards. I'm sure you all know your own ruts. You know your own things you tend to fall into over and over again. When we're not mindful, it's like those ruts are making those, our decisions for us. Our habits and patterns are choosing for us. So the choices are being made, whether or not we're conscious of it. When we can bring mindfulness into the present moment, to this process of making choice, we can start to have a little bit of a wedge in the door to begin to say, ah, maybe I don't want to choose that way. Not always. I mean, often what happens as we just start, as we start this exploration, as we, we you know, see this intention and this motivation, and then all we get to do is watch ourselves follow through on it. And then we just get to see, what we get to see at that point is the consequences of following through on that action. We get to see what happens as a result of that. Often it's some kind of struggle, some kind of suffering, And then the instruction is just to understand that suffering, just to meet it. Let go of thoughts of self-recrimination. I should have been able to stop myself. If you could have stopped yourself, you would have. Sometimes our habits are stronger than our ability to be mindful. And we have to respect that. You know, it's it's like we, we have to, you know, acknowledge that the conditioned patterns of our mind have a lot of power. And, you know, mindfulness is pretty powerful, but sometimes those habits are more are stronger than our mindfulness. And so when that happens, we just have to be compassionate for ourselves. You know, this is happening because of the way causes and conditions have come together. The habits of my mind have led to this. And can I now be compassionate towards the situation I find myself in and just meet this moment with mindfulness? We can start exploring this moment of choice in our, um, in our actions. It's actually you know, an interesting exploration to make, something you might want to play with. You don't have to do this, but you, know, you might just want to play with this. When you're sitting, you might take a period of, say, 10 minutes at the beginning or at the end of the sitting where you kind of just say, okay, I'm not going to move. I'm I'm just going to see if I can hold still. And then 
having made that kind of resolve around stillness, see if you can notice the intention to move before you move. If you notice that intention, see, you may want to see, okay, can I, can I just see what's the motivation behind that? Is it an aversion because I've got an itch on my nose and I really want to scratch that itch? Or is it, you know, a pain that I want to move to relieve that pain? Now, I'm not saying, you, you know, not to move at all, but notice. So if you can, if you can have, that, have that resolve for stillness, you, you might begin to notice that intention and begin to notice the motivation that accompanies it. And see if you can choose whether or not to follow through on it. Sometimes, you know, if there's a certain kind of pain, you know, you've been sitting for a while, and you can tell there's a certain kind of pain I have, you know, my sciatic nerve. If I'm sitting on my sciatic nerve, I, there's a pain. There's a certain pain that really lets me know it's time to move now. You know, the, the body is going to be damaged if I don't move. And I can move then out of compassion rather than aversion. But if I'm not present to notice that, I'd probably just move kind of automatically out of aversion. Oh, I don't like that. I want to get rid of that. But we can choose to move more skillfully. So explore that. You can play with that a little bit in your, in your experience. Another place to play with it is around changing of postures. You know, if you're sitting, then... See if you can know you're going to stand before you stand. You know, you're in the dining room and you're eating your lunch and, and they have, you know, some special thing for lunch. You know, the watermelon is out there and there's only a few pieces of watermelon left. And you've kind of had your eye on that watermelon and you see somebody walking over there and suddenly you're up, you know, wanting to get to the watermelon before the other person gets there. And that was some greed motivating that action. So, you know, just see if you can notice these, the larger changes of of bodily posture are sometimes kind of an inroad into being able to see our intention and the motivation that goes behind it. Again, not to say that we're not supposed to act at all. I mean, that that's often a misunderstanding of the the Buddhist teaching. But that we um, see if we can in the seeing of our motivation, often in seeing our motivations, you know, there's kind of a mixture of wholesome and skillful motivations and unwholesome, unskillful motivations. Like the moving, for example, the moving when, you know, there's pain in your body. You know, knowing that this pain is damaging the body. There may well be some aversion to that pain. And there is the sense of knowing. This is a skillful thing to do. You know, the damage to the body is not a, not a good thing. So there is a compassionate motivation there as well. And so sometimes I like to suggest for people in seeing these mixed motivations, just see if you can connect a little bit more to the more wholesome motivation in taking the action. And just kind of see if you can incline more towards the compassion than the aversion in the movement.
So I've already talked a little bit about concentration, that that's another benefit of being in the present moment. You know, being in the present moment, the mindfulness, the, the, the um, sustaining our mindful attention in the present moment leads to concentration. It's, it's as simple as that, that if we can simply moment after moment be present, the mind will become concentrated, it will become settled, it will become calm. And this feels good. This is a good feeling. The, the, the state of concentration feels pretty good. So um, that's a benefit of this practice, that as we learn how to engage with more continuity, it brings some peacefulness, it brings some happiness into our being. It brings a sense of well-being. So that's a great benefit. And through that well-being, through that uh, sense of happiness, the the mind opens into some of these more beautiful qualities that we were talking about this afternoon. The the you know the um, in the present moment we can begin to have a kind of a heartfelt connection to the present moment. That as we were talking about you know the kind relationship to our experience. Being in the present moment, we can have that kind of connection. I'll read another poem by Rilke that kind of speaks to this happiness of being here. Truly being here is glorious. Each of you had an hour, or perhaps not even an hour, a barely measurable time between two moments when you were granted a sense of being, everything. Your veins flowed with being. Yet we can so easily forget what our laughing neighbor neither confirms nor envies. So this state that we can, this well-being, this this heart-opening connection to the present moment, very beautiful. And we all know that feeling. But we do tend to kind of overlook it at times, or we... Our culture doesn't really respect or honor it. And so we, going out into, we come into retreat and we cultivate these, this sense of being present. And yet, when we go out back into our lives, we often forget this because our culture doesn't value it. And so being here, we really can begin to get a sense of the value of this being present. It's very beautiful. And it, this, the being present, stable in the present moment, begins to open us up to insight, begins to open us up to actually seeing things more clearly. 
we begin to, to understand more deeply impermanence through being in the present moment. Seeing impermanence directly through experience. You know, watching these emotions, for instance, you know, watching the feeling of wanting. I recommend this one highly. You know, if you want something, you know, you want that piece of watermelon. Play with watching the wanting instead of following through on the wanting. Feel the wanting. Feel the kind of magnetic pull, that kind of magnetic connection between you and that watermelon. It's like it's drawing you over there. Just feel it. Can you just feel it? If you just feel it without thinking so much about, I have to have that watermelon, that's going to make me happy for this three seconds. If you, if you just feel the feeling, you will see it vanish. And when you see it vanish, you know in that moment directly the impermanent nature of that experience. And the, you will also know directly the way that that wanting had you in its grip. When that wanting releases, it's like being released from a vice grip. And you directly see how you were suffering, how you were caught by your own mind. So insight, insight is possible through being in the present moment. I'll close by reading a Tibetan poem. A kind of, it's a kind of a, you know, in a way it's a kind of a a bookend to the poem I started with. And the poem I started with pointed out, you know, let go of the past, let go of the future, notice with insight each presently arisen state. That's what we've been talking about. You know, see each presently arisen state. You have to do this here and now. This is the only place you can do this. You need to do it today because we never know when we're going to die. This, this poem says some similar things. This human body, at peace with itself, is more precious than the rarest gem. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, is the tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that passes away even as it comes into being. Therefore, set your goal and make every day and night a time to attain it. Treasure the time you have been given, for this is all that matters. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.